Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the sustainability of government debt and whether the market is heading down a long and winding road to recovery, what the impact of the Chancellor's summer economic statement may be, the government's recently announced back-to-work policy, and where we stand with the latest round of Brexit negotiations. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, Sophie Traherne, UK government relations expert, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I'm Miles Sherry, one of the investment consultants here at Barclays, and hopefully it's a name a few of our listeners uh, may recognise, as my role is to support our wealth managers and their clients Uh, having the luxury of focusing solely on uh, investments. Now, our regular subscribers um, will, I'm sure, be very used to the voices of our usual hosts, Phil Atreed, who I work for, and also Nikki Eggers, our head of investments, but both are currently enjoying some well-earned time off. But I'm very pleased to host this edition, and I'm joined firstly by Sophie Traherne, our resident government relations expert, who can bring us up to speed on all the ins and outs of Westminster. So Sophie will be touching on topics such as the Chancellor's summer economic statements, the government's back-to-work policy, as well as, of course, as Brexit, which is still in focus given the continued negotiations we are seeing there. We're also joined by our Head of Asset Allocation, Jean-Paul Yeagers, who will cover off the latest developments around the coronavirus and also look at how both governments and central banks, as well as, of course, as the financial markets are continuing to respond to the pandemic. So JP, it's probably not surprising that the main question I get asked by clients is what the latest situation is across the world with the coronavirus. Um, What's the latest you and the team are seeing there? Hello, Miles and Sophie. Yeah, that's indeed still on the minds of a lot of investors. So what are the developments we see uh, in, in, in these pandemic? We still see that there is an acceleration in the number of case counts in some parts of the world. Uh, so we see in particular, for instance, in the US or Latin America that we get to levels that yeah prompt some concern about uh, how widespread this, this, this virus is getting in those areas. But we also now see in Europe that some countries see some increases, although that's definitely from a lower base in Europe. But we do see that after the relaxation of some measures, we see some increases in, for instance, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, France. Um, What's a little bit more concerning is probably the US. So we see that the number of states in the US, uh, it's spreading, is is accelerating. And that's also something the FT earlier this week reported on, that if you would look at which of the states are sensitive to the economy, we actually see it represents a larger chunk of of the yeah of, of, of the economy. So even if we would get to an area where we get uh, where we get reinstation of more localized lockdown. It has actually spread you know, wider in the in the last few days and weeks. So that's definitely something we're monitoring closely. Thanks, JP. I'll um I'll come back to you a bit later. But quite a bit has happened really since we last had you on, uh, Sophie. We've seen plenty of government activity over the past two weeks or so, and we of course had the the Chancellor's summer economic statement. So perhaps it's worth uh, starting with with that. What were the key takeaways um, from the statement that you saw? Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, lots going on following the, the Prime Minister's uh, big uh, build, build, build speech. Um, we then, as you said, had the Chancellor's 
summer economic statement, which was really trying to keep the, the momentum up on the kind of drumbeat of, of positive news and announcements from the government. And the plan for jobs, as it was called, had various announcements on employment schemes, uh, with the priority clearly trying to get as many people as possible from furlough back into work. So we had announcements around the new job retention bonus, the new £2 billion kickstart scheme uh, for younger people, uh, 1.6 billion will be invested in scaling up employment support schemes, training and apprenticeships. Uh, and he also talked about the, the big infrastructure announcements the PM uh, made in his speech and how they will help create tens of, tens of thousands of jobs. Um, another big theme of the Chancellor's statement was was really getting people back out and, and about and spending their money. And this is really at the heart of the UK recovery for the Chancellor. He he wants to encourage people to venture out to their high streets and town centres and, and start spending to boost the economy. So obviously we had the, the Eat Out to Help Out voucher scheme. And he also wants people to kind of reconsider their but potentially frozen house purchases, hence the stamp duty announcement. Um, and there was also, you'll have seen a specific focus on certain sectors. We obviously had the VAT cut for hospitality and leisure businesses. There was some criticism that there were no real mentions of, of some of the other sectors who've been greatly impacted by the pandemic. So manufacturing, construction, travel come to mind. But I think overall, the statement seemed to be received well politically. And, you know, the Chancellor's own approval ratings are, are very positive. Uh, a YouGov survey uh, just after the statement showed that nearly 60 percent of people think he's doing a good job. And, and this makes him the most popular Chancellor in, in 15 years. Thanks, Sophie. I'm I'm certainly looking forward to to uh, take advantage of that eat out to help out scheme. And I'm just thinking there, as you were saying, I can imagine Will Hobbs uh, thinking about whether KFC will be on that list to get his uh, his usual buckets of <laughs> fried fried chicken. But we also had the the PM announcing, didn't we, last Friday, the the government's back to work policy. Can you give us a quick run rundown, I guess, of you know what was announced there, and also on a forward looking basis, you know, is there anything we can expect sort of coming up in that space? Yes, um, as you say, there was there was more from the government last week. So we had the press conference from the Prime Minister on Friday and the main themes covered in his statement um, involved the NHS. So we had uh, £3 billion worth of funding announced to support the NHS through what could be, you know, quite tough winter months. Um, also, local lockdowns was another big theme on Friday. And, and we know that this you know, this local approach to tackling the pandemic is really how the government wants to handle the virus from now on. You know, the Prime Minister does not want to impose another national lockdown. His comments were that we know more about the virus and our understanding of where it's spreading is much better. So we can therefore control the virus through this sort of targeted uh, local action. And so uh, to support that, he announced new powers to local authorities in England so that they can close uh, specific premises, shut public outdoor spaces, cancel public events, etc., essentially without having to seek central government permission. But I suppose uh, the big announcement from Friday, which you've already mentioned, and one which there was much speculation about, was the further lockdown easing and, and specifically whether the government will change the work from home guidance. And the Prime Minister confirmed that from the 1st of August, there will be updated advice on going to work. And he said that instead of government telling people to work from home, they're going to give employers uh, much more discretion and, and ask them to consider how their employees can work safely. And, you know, essentially the government wants to get people back to their offices to help town centres and high streets who are who are suffering without that commuter footfall 
and uh, in fact to encourage people they actually had the first physical cabinet meeting in more than four months yesterday to demonstrate to people that it is safe to to go back to work and, and be to, sort of together in an office space. In terms of further announcements coming up, well, there are clearly some big challenges ahead. Um, government support schemes will be coming to an end in the next few months. So the big test will come when this support starts to drop off. Um, local management of the pandemic and the test and trace system will become increasingly important in sort of trying to prevent any national issues in the winter. And I suppose a big question is how the support announced by the government, including the latest package from the Chancellor, uh, will obviously be paid for. Um, the Chancellor did say that over the medium term, we must put public finances back on a sustainable footing. So lots of questions over, over what that autumn budget might look like. Um, but beyond COVID, it, it won't have escaped anyone's notice that there are lots of other issues dominating the political agenda, China and, and the Russian security report being front of mind. So lots to keep an eye on. Lots to keep an eye on, as you say, as always in, in your world at the moment, it seems. We'll, we'll come back to you at the end, Sophie, to, to touch on uh, Brexit. But JP, back to you. Um, I've been seeing a lot of headlines and I guess a lot of our clients and listeners will have been seeing a lot of headlines uh, in recent days, that because of all the government initiatives, you know, we, we've seen to cushion some of the economic impact uh, of this pandemic, debt has now risen, you know, to its highest level since 1963. And that's the level where it is actually larger than its economy. And let's be honest, you know, at, at face value, the numbers are really quite eye-watering. So we've seen a debt to GDP of just over 100% uh, being reported. Um, just to start us off, what exactly is meant by uh, debt to GDP? And I guess, secondly, in what sense would this actually start to matter for um, financial markets? Well, Miles, that, that's an excellent question. And I think here many books and theses have been written on this topic, uh, on debt and when does it matter for financial markets. Um, so indeed, we have seen that, that governments stepped in with spending in many parts of the globe. But uh, as, as you mentioned, what is uh, debt to GDP? We cannot really interpret a single number very meaningfully. So that's often why it's expressed as the debt issued by a government relative to the size of its economy. Uh, and, and, and for some time, it, it, it has been the dogma that high debt uh, burdens and low growth are actually linked. Uh, and, and hence the focus on austerity after the great financial crisis here in the UK, but as well, for example, for highly adapted Eurozone countries. Uh, this was the line of thinking as empirically described by the, the Reinhardt and, and Rokoff uh, studies, who studied history and actually found there was a correlation between levels of, de of debt and growth. Although it didn't really say anything about causality. So it didn't say, for example, whether debt would result in lower growth or lower growth actually results in higher debt. Also, there were contained some, some, some error that was picked up afterwards where actually, if you correct for it, the relation was less strong. Potentially here, policymakers have been oversimplifying and exaggerating this link. However, th this dogma is, is, is changing uh, with these lev low levels of interest rates uh, and the clear need to step in. Uh, in, in, in other words, this is not a case like deflating a U.S. housing market or a banking crisis. Um, and we now see that the, the, the so-called modern monetary theory seems to be gaining more ground. So this is the school of thought that argues that any sovereign can print their fiat currency and therefore cannot go voluntarily bankrupt. So they argue that government should spend when growth is larger than the cost of debt. Uh, and as, as a government has, does not have the limits as a normal household budget would have. 
So, so, so they would argue you need to in, in a household budget you need the money first in order to spend it. They argue if if you own the printing press you can just spend whenever you want. So I know you love a good book, uh, JP, and you know don't get me wrong, it, it's all very interesting. Um, but for some it may all sound you know quite theoretical. So you know in my role I talk to clients regularly and they often ask how sustainable the the debt level um is and you know let's be honest it's a it's a very valid question really I think it it is indeed a very valid question and we actually think the higher levels of debt we see at the moment for governments is fine for most countries uh, given the low level of interest rates we see but of course we know that these may not stay here forever uh, and every economy has its own speed limit before prices start to rise also, we simply do not know the duration of the required help uh, by governments, uh, given the very little visibility we have on the timeline of how we get out of this pandemic. So, I'll, and here we see the recent news flow on the clinical trials have been more encouraging. Okay, and I guess considering you know that that debt level we we've, we've spoken about, what are the um, mechanisms you know that we've seen in the past uh, by governments and and I guess central banks to bring these uh, levels of of debt down? I've seen various talk, you know around the fact that, you know, central banks probably want to keep interest rates quite low. I guess that's uh, in terms of the, the cheap debt on the servicing side. Um, but also I've heard some talk around, you know, inflation being a good thing and, and that kind of thing. So can you just go into a bit more detail uh, around that? Um, yes, of course. So, so in, in, if, if we just look at the past and historically, then there are a number of ways that we have seen in the past that debt burdens are being brought down. One, just you get enough growth. So very often if you think about a growing population, if you get more productivity, or even if you would think about your interest rates being lower than inflation, which actually is hurting your savers, but actually benefiting your, your highly indebted uh, parts in the economy. And that's often called financial repression. Uh, second, we could have a default uh, like we had in Russia in the 90s. So a, a government can simply decide not to pay uh, to, to pay the, the bondholders their, their money. Third, we have devaluation. So this is an example we've seen, for example, in the Greek crisis, where instead of you getting your money back within 10 years, they suddenly restructured it in a way that you get your money back in 30 years. So that makes your current value of the debt lower. And you could have some form, for example, of debt deflation. So this is actually what we often see with property price bubbles bursts, that if your assets go down in value, that actually the debt that's linked to those assets, so in this case mortgages, uh, will be worked down over time as well. So there are some stylized examples we can use from the past, and they all have different flavors and are slightly different uh, in order to bring debt down. Uh, the levels we see in the UK at the moment are comparable to what we see, for example, in France, in the Eurozone, in the US, uh, where at the higher end we see, for example, Japan. So Japan is closer to 250% of GDP, Italy closer to 150 uh, And at the lower end we see, for instance, Switzerland, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands and Germany, who are more in a 40 to 60 range. So we see it, it varies across countries and time will tell on when it starts to matter and how. Uh, absolutely. But th th that was interesting. Thank you. Um, Sophie, just, just back to you uh, quickly. Um, you know, we've obviously had the latest round of Brexit negotiations. They've been happening this week. Can you just give us a sense of where things stand, I guess, at the moment? 
I assume we should really still consider the the autumn period the crunch point for the for the negotiations really yeah so so as you've said the, the latest round of formal negotiations are, are taking place this week in London and in terms of how they're going well always very difficult to comment with confidence but you know there are still some big gaps between the two sides on some of the key issues like state aid although there are also some reports that progress is being made. So very hard to tell at this stage. And there is probably quite a bit of tactical briefing going on uh, from both sides. But any political agreement this summer looks like it will now be in August rather than July. And the idea is that once you have a political agreement, then the drafting of the actual free trade agreement itself can begin. And then that can be signed off at the October European Council meeting. So definitely keep an eye on these talks throughout July and August. The, the next round and what we assume to be the final round of negotiations is from the 17th to the 21st of August in Brussels. So that could be the crucial round for a political agreement. Um, but obviously, we'll have to wait and see. I should also say that in this context, the government launched last week a new public information campaign to remind UK businesses and, and individuals that they, they need to start thinking and preparing for the end of the transition period. And this will all obviously ramp up as we get into the autumn period, um, as you mentioned, that, that kind of crunch point. So lots more Brexit to come. Thanks, Sophie. There's, there's so much going on in this space, you know, be it be it the government side, as, as you've spoken about, or, or the coronavirus. But it, it's actually hard, JP, in, in some ways to, to keep track of, you know, what, what's still to come. And it's important to remember that we still have the, the presidential elections coming up in the in the US later this year don't we when, when exactly is that that's indeed correct that's in November so so plenty of events uh, on the horizon on a forward looking basis that will that will certainly be keeping investors busy then yes but but but, but this is this this is indeed something we that we know that politics or referenda or elections are largely impossible to call we have we have seen the examples like the previous US elections or the twists and turns in the Brexit uh, developments that analysts can analyze what's a rational outcome or what will be a likely outcome. But in fact, we can only prepare and assess the potential outcome as one out of many. Uh, in the US, we see, for example, that the polls indicate a, a sizable lead for Biden, uh, which is also quite chunky in a historical context. But we also know there's still plenty of time and many things that could happen. Yeah, always got to be careful with with polling, as, as you said. Um, but look, thank you for, for joining us uh, for this week's podcast. We, we hope you enjoyed it. And as always, we, we do welcome any feedback listeners have. So please do feel free to, to get in touch. Thanks as usual to uh, Jean-Paul and Sophie. But that's all from us. Uh, stay safe. Enjoy the weekend when the time comes. And we will speak next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.